Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. Already this show has gone off to a really good start because so far the Wi-Fi is working and I'm so, so happy about that. Uh, last week it started off working and I'm still keeping my fingers crossed, but towards, I think, 25% of the show's completion, the internet just stopped working and it really annoyed me because I need the internet to get some of my information. Some of the information I have about movies, I can tell you right off the top of my head, but others, I need a little bit of assistance. So in this sense, I'm very happy the internet is working. Otherwise I'd be in a little bit of chaos, but I think with, you know, 20 years of being on the radio, and this is literally true. I have 20 years of radio experience. I know to go with the flow, even during technical difficulties, but even with that, I am privileged that I'm able to get Wi-Fi and I'm keeping my fingers crossed that it stays on. And if it does stay on during my entire show, let me, let me hear the, hopefully you can hear me knocking on wood. Yeah, I think you heard that. But anyway, if it does stay on during the remainder of my show, I will celebrate very loudly at the end. No, not really, but, or at least not while the microphone is on, but in any event, for this show, Words on Film, I have three new movies to review for you. Two are brand new, i.e. they came out on Friday, August 6th, and one of them came out last weekend on Friday, July 30th. I just didn't get a chance to review it until now. So, the first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Suicide Squad, which is a sequel to the 2016 movie called Suicide Squad. I don't know why this wasn't called Suicide Squad 2 or the next Suicide Squad, but it is basically what it is. It is definitely made to be sort of a makeup for the original Suicide Squad. And that movie, uh, Suicide Squad, came out before Wonder Woman. And when it came out, despite its very, very evident flaws in terms of storytelling, I still thought it was the best of the DCEU, i.e. the DC Extended Universe movies, up to that point, I had seen, I hadn't seen Man of Steel, but I had seen Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice, and was profoundly disappointed when I actually saw that. But Suicide Squad was a lot more fun, and it also had Margot Robbie at the helm as Harley Quinn, and Margot Robbie is undoubtedly the best thing to ever happen to the DC extended universe. The only problem is the DC extended universe has not gotten into its head to make one Harley Quinn movie. They, they fooled you into thinking that they were going to make a Harley Quinn movie with birds of prey. That movie came out in early 2020, right before the pandemic. But the profound disappointment about it was even though Harley Quinn was a supporting character, she wasn't the central focus of the movie, or at least not ultimately by the end. And by the end, even if you're a big fan of the uh, DC universe that includes Batman and Superman, you're still wondering to yourself, who are the birds of prey and who cares? With The Suicide Squad, despite not having a title that sounds like a sequel, it seems like it wants to put 
all of the past discretions, indiscretions of Suicide Squad from 2016 and the Birds of Prey movie behind it. And frankly, I don't blame it for doing that. Now, the events that happened in the 2016 movie Suicide Squad are hinted upon here, but they're not elaborated upon. And there are several characters, major characters from that 2016 movie that are not in this movie. First and foremost is Will Smith does not reprise his role as Floyd Lawton, a.k.a. Deadshot. And it's never explained his disappearance, but Will Smith probably turned the opportunity to reprise his role as Deadshot down. It's too bad because I actually thought he was one of the stronger players along with Margot Robbie in the original Suicide Squad movie, but also missing from the Suicide Squad movie without giving too much away. I'm just going to mention one more character because there are some characters in the uh, Suicide Squad who are part of the titular group of characters who met their demise in that movie. And I'm going to stick with words on films, policy, my own policy about no spoilers. The other character that was missing from this movie that was in the original uh, 2016 movie was Waylon Jones, also known as Killer Croc. He was played by, in very heavy makeup, Adewale Akinoye Agbaje. I hope I pronounced that name correctly. I thought he was one of the better characters in that movie, but instead we have a new Suicide Squad with mainly one actually two uh, characters who are part of the Suicide Squad in this movie that were also in the original. As I mentioned, Margot Robbie reprises her role for the third time as Harley Quinn, and for the second time, Joel Kinnaman reprises his role as Colonel Rick Flagg. Also, while she's not technically a member of the Suicide Squad, Viola Davis, the great actress, comes back as Amanda Waller, who is the government official who gives out the squad's orders. Now, in the original Suicide Squad, there was a very muddled and convoluted plot. In this Suicide Squad movie, the plot is much clearer, and in my opinion, it is a lot more exciting. So, as I said... Viola Davis is back as Amanda Waller, and she sends two Task Force X teams, which were previously known as the Suicide Squad, consisting of Bell Reeve, uh, penitentiary inmates, which I believe is the penitentiary in Metropolis, I believe, to a South American island nation of Corto Maltese after the government is thrown by an anti-American regime. Now, You probably know, if you know your geography, that South America has 13 countries and none of them are islands. So Corto Maltese is actually not a South American island nation, but in the DC Extended Universe, it works. And there are probably many Spanish-speaking countries in South America that are like Corto Maltese. In other words, they not only speak Spanish, but they're also overthrown by an anti-American dictatorship or have been over the last century or so. So these two Task Force X teams, in exchange for a lighter sentence, are tasked with destroying Jotuham, which is a Nazi-era laboratory that holds a secretive experiment known as Project Starfish. So very much like in the original Suicide Squad movie, people who are not familiar with the DC comics or haven't read them for a while are probably thinking to themselves, 
Why is Amanda Waller sending a ragtag team of criminals instead of the superheroes like Superman or Wonder Woman? Batman probably wouldn't be too much help uh, since he is a mere mortal, but that's another story for another time. And that is actually part of the twist in this film. So when all is said and done, the primary people that are focused upon in the two teams of the Suicide Squad, because there are some characters, without spoiling too much, that make an appearance but then quickly disappear. And by disappear, I mean they die. But when the first 10 minutes of the film is established, we're introduced to a lot of the main characters. As I said, Harley Quinn makes an appearance here, and she is as batty and as delightfully wicked as ever. We're also introduced to a man by the name of Robert Dubois, who is a convict, also known as Bloodsport, who's played by Idris Elba, making his initial appearance in the DC Extended Universe. Bloodsport is a mercenary with a technologically advanced suit and weapons that only he can use. And interestingly enough, he was convicted of shooting Superman with a kryptonite bullet and putting Superman in intensive care. Why was that not in a previous movie? I don't know, but maybe it's going to be in a prequel. But he shortens his prison sentence by joining Task Force X so he can reunite with his daughter, Tyla. And other members of the Suicide Squad include a man by the name of Christopher Smith, who is a rogue superhero known as Peacemaker, who, despite his Dennis Kucinich-sounding-like name, he, oh, first of all, he's played by John Cena, but he is a ruthless, jingoistic killer who believes in achieving peace at any cost. So he's kind of like Malcolm X to Superman's Martin Luther King, if you want to put it that way. But then again, the Superman played by um, Brandon Ruth in this DC Extended Universe is anything but mercenary. But in any event... Um, John Cena plays Peacemaker. There's also a large um, shark by the name of King Shark, also known as Nananu, who's voiced by Sylvester Stallone. And King Shark is a CGI character, and he is voiced by Sylvester Stallone, which is actually kind of a um, surprise because Sylvester Stallone is now the only actor that I know of who is actually part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe as well as the DC Extended Universe. So he he actually has a really good role in this movie as well. And there's also a young woman who is able to control an army of rats. It's a very interesting sidekick kind of um, role that she has, and she is played by um, a young actress of Portuguese descent whose name is Daniela Menchoir, who is probably the heart of the Suicide Squad. And there's also one other supervillain who is actually probably not so much a supervillain as much as a villain named Polka Dot Man, and he's played by David Dast Malchan who is uh, an experiment gone wrong turned criminal who has some serious mommy issues and probably some of the more, uh, the funnier parts of this film. 
So when you see Bloodsport, Harley Quinn, Peacemaker, Colonel Rick Flag, Nanu, uh, or I'm going to call him King Shark because his real name is is much harder pr- to pronounce, as well as Polka Dot Man and Ratcatcher 2 all teaming up together to go to this South American island nation to take down the Nazi-era laboratory, there are some very fun parts and funny parts that ensue when all of them are coming together to bring down this Nazi-era laboratory. And once you actually get in the Nazi-era laboratory, the experiments that apparently these Nazis who were um, on the run from the Nuremberg officials who would otherwise put them in prison and or execute them is quite horrific. I'm not going to tell you exactly what's in that prison, and I'm also not going to tell you why Amanda Waller didn't send Superman or any other model American hero to do this task. But it makes a lot more sense that Amanda Waller would send these heroes down as opposed to, um, or rather, send these ragtag team of villains down as opposed to the heroes we all know uh, just as well. And I think that Amanda Waller, Viola Davis's character, has a very encouraging story arc that is probably going to be, for better or worse for her character, expanded in later movies. At least I hope they are. And the DC Extended Universe, as I said, has created some movies that have been hit or miss. They've been more hit with movies like Wonder Woman and Shazam, and maybe an honorable mention to the Aquaman movie, but they've been a little bit more of a miss with the original Suicide Squad movie, as well as Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice. It seemed like the DC Extended Universe was busier catching up with um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe as opposed to developing their characters and telling better stories. But I do think that the Suicide Squad had a good minimalistic approach to to developing the characters in this Suicide Squad movie. And I enjoyed this movie a lot more than the 2016 movie Suicide Squad. The latter 2016 movie I didn't think was bad, but I did think that it's needed a lot of work with the story, and it was obvious that there was some studio interference to make the the plot a lot more muddled and confusing. But with James Gunn as the writer and director of the film, there is a lot less ambiguity uh, to the story, and I think it's a lot more straightforward. Plus, the actors, especially Margot Robbie, look like they're having a lot of fun with this film. And Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn is so damn good in this movie. And she develops another side to her that's a little bit less wacky, but still equally as intriguing as the previous films. The DC Extended Universe needs to give Harley Quinn her own movie. She... As played by Margot Robbie, she's a lot more intriguing than just being a supporting actor. And this movie needs to capitalize upon, or rather, 
future movies need to capitalize upon Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn and make her the center character, not just unlike the Birds of Prey movie, pretend to make her the central character. But The Suicide Squad was a very fun film. It's a film I probably would see again. I think all the actors, especially Margot Robbie, Idris Elba, and John Cena, amongst others, work together really well. I I like the idea that this is a Dirty Dozen kind of film, and it's what the original Suicide Squad movie should have been. I think this movie should have been called The Next Suicide Squad, but what matters is The Suicide Squad from 2021, not Suicide Squad from 2016, gets my rating of a knockout. It is a very fun film. It developed characters the right way without overcrowding the story. The the story itself was very clear and very focused. The special effects, especially on the the villains not the anti-heroes at the end of the the film, was very intriguing. And it is cool that this movie was the furthest thing from predictable. So The Suicide Squad is a sign that DC Extended Universe took a long, long time to find its narrative footing, and they botched a lot of opportunities with Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, and the Justice League movie, which should have been a lot better than they ultimately were. But when all is said and done, The Suicide Squad is well worth the wait. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Stillwater. This is the movie I was telling you about that came out on the weekend of July 30th, but I didn't get to review it until now. It is directed by Tom McCarthy, and Tom McCarthy is a prolific American director who has brought us such films as a director as The Station Agent, which actually put Peter Dinklage on the map. He also had a great follow-up with 2007's The Visitor, which earned Richard Jenkins his first and only Academy Award nomination for Best Actress uh, act, Actor, which um, was well-deserved. He also directed a film with um, Paul Giamatti and Burt Young, which was called Win-Win, which was flawed, but it was okay. He directed The Cobbler next with Adam Sandler, which was critically reviled, although I did see it in 2014, and I liked it. But his best movie to date has been his um, 2015 movie Spotlight, which won two Academy Awards, one for Best Picture and one for Best Original Screenplay. It was nominated for several other Academy Awards, including Tom McCarthy himself for Best Director, as well as Mark Ruffalo for Best uh, Supporting Actor, and Rachel McAdams for Best Supporting Actress, all of which were well-deserved. His follow-up to Spotlight was a 2020 film called Timmy Failure, Mistakes Were Made, which was a comedy that debuted on Disney Plus last year. I didn't get to see that, but Stillwater is his first adult directorial effort 
since Spotlight. Is it as good a movie as Spotlight? Unfortunately, it isn't. But it, it still has a lot of really good performances by the likes of Matt Damon and Abigail Breslin. And Matt Damon plays a Stillwater, Oklahoma oil worker named Bill Baker who travels to Marseille, which is the second largest city in France and is in the Province Alps Cote d'Ivoire region in France, also known as the Ivory Coast. It is located on the coast of the Gulf of Lyon, part of the Mediterranean Sea, near the mouth of the Rhone River. And... Uh, Bill Baker is a guy who dropped out of high school and has been working as an oil worker for quite some time until he's laid off. And since then, he has been working to repair or rather clean up damage from hurricanes as Oklahoma is one of the states where um, hurricanes or I'm sorry, tornadoes. He's cleaning up after tornadoes and um I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, I'm, I'm just a little distracted here, but anyway, uh, he's cleaning up after tornadoes and he is trying to get his estranged daughter, Allison, who's played by Abigail Breslin out of prison in Marseille, where she's been for the last four years. And it's clear that Bill and before that, Allison's maternal grandmother, Sharon, who's played by Dina Dunnigan, have been traveling to Marseille to visit Allison regularly since her arrest. But while attending university in Marseille, Allison was convicted for killing her roommate and unfaithful lover, whose name was Lena. This is not uh, based on a book. It's based on uh, an original screenplay written by Tom McCarthy, Marcus Hinchey, Thomas Bittigain, and Noé Debray. But it is actually based on a real-life incident that happened with a woman by the name of Amanda Knox. And Amanda Knox is a young woman, only 34 years old, but in 2007, when she was 20 years old, she was convicted for the murder of Meredith Kircher, who was a fellow exchange student who was also a roommate of hers. And it was only in 2015 when Knox was acquitted by the Italian Supreme Court of Cassation. And she's a free woman now. And I would not have, I remember hearing about the story of Amanda Knox way back when, but apparently Amanda Knox knows about this movie and she is not happy with the fact that the movie is based on her. I don't think that it paints a woman like Amanda Knox in a bad light, but I do think actually it should have, rather than introduce Bill Baker's character, it should have probably given a lot more visual exposition on what Abigail Breslin's character was going through. Basically, a, sort of a synopsis of what happened that night, maybe not every single thing, but a, a layman's nutshell depiction of the the murder that took place without seeing who actually did it. I think that would have put the movie on the right path. Also, you don't get a sense of what Allison experiences while in prison. This was told entirely through the perspective of Matt Damon's character, which I 
think actually slowed down the movie considerably. The running time of this movie is 140 minutes, which is two hours and 20 minutes. And because it's through his perspective, it does slow things down considerably. But it actually turns out that when Bill travels to Marseille to try to free his daughter Allison with uh, limited means, he forms an unlikely friendship with a local resident named Virginie, who's played by Camille Cotton, to translate some letters he receives that are in French. And he not only befriends Virginie, but he also befriends her eight-year-old daughter, Maya. And the two of them, the three of them, I should say, form a very unlikely friendship, which results in Bill actually living with them a bit more long-term as he is trying to get Allison out of prison. Now, he is gainfully uh, unemployed. He does basically gig work and uh, unskilled labor. Um, but he is of course, uh, trying his best to get his daughter out of prison and also acknowledging that the two of them have a relatively dysfunctional relationship. And I think that the best scenes in this film, not only involve Matt Damon, Camille Cotton and, uh, Lilou Siviad, but also the scenes where, Matt Damon meets with Abigail Breslin. I think the two of them have a lot of chemistry together. They made me believe that they were father and daughter, even dysfunctional father and daughter. And I think that Matt Damon and Abigail Breslin have the biggest standout performances in this film. But it's slow pace and the fact that it was primarily through Matt Damon's character's perspective did slow down the movie considerably. Also, I didn't think Stillwater was the best name for this film because, yes, the main character comes from Stillwater, Oklahoma, but you're you're only in Stillwater for about 20 minutes out of this 140-minute film. So I didn't think that quite worked. I assumed going into this film that it was going to be about a struggling, unemployed oil worker and how he is struggling to make ends meet. Maybe it was that expectation that clouded my judgment of the film, but I do think what this movie lacked narratively, it made up for in the great performances by Matt Damon, Abigail Breslin, Camille Cotton, and Lilou Siviad. For that reason, it gets my rating of a checkout. I think that Matt Damon is very competent in this movie. He certainly made me convinced for a guy who was raised in Cambridge and went to Harvard for a short while, that he was born and raised in Oklahoma and was a high school dropout. And that really says a lot about Matt Damon's commitment to his character. It's also great to see Abigail Breslin, after a while not being in um, significant films, seeing her in a strong supporting performance like this. And the movie is gold when the two of them work together. It's a bit more silver. And there's not too much wrong with silver, but it's not gold when everything else in the movie comes together in such slow a pace.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Val. This is an American documentary film directed and produced, also compiled, by Leo Scott and Ting Pu, directors whom I have not heard of before this movie, but it follows the life and career of actor Val Kilmer, who in the 90s and the early aughts was an A-lister, and he's had certainly a prolific and impressive acting career, but if you have wondered where Val Kilmer has been over the last couple of years, you are not the only one. This documentary, Val, answers that question and more. And as it turns out, Val Kilmer himself has been very good about filming his own life from the early 1980s up until the present. So what has Val Kilmer been up to over the last couple of years? Well, obviously his star has faded, but in addition to that, he um, has had throat cancer. And when he went in in 2015 to be treated for throat cancer, it resulted in his voice box being removed. So his voice is not the same as it used to be. And he actually has a device in his throat that's similar to uh, heavy chain smokers who have had lung cancer, who get their lungs removed, and as a result, almost have to burp their words in order to be understood if they don't have one of those contraptions that creates a robotic voice for them. But the film is narrated by Kilmer's own words, and on video that he did not shoot and narrate himself, his son, Jack Kilmer, narrates Val Kilmer's words for him. And what's interesting about this is that Leo Scott, one of the directors of this film, initially began working as an editor with the writer and director Harmony Corrine on his short film, The Lotus Community Workshop, when he suddenly came across Val Kilmer's archive and dug through, get this, 800 hours, 800 hours of footage. I am amazed uh, by somebody who can go through that much footage in that short, or rather in, I'm, I'm just amazed by somebody who can go through 800 hours of footage. Who knows how long that would take somebody? I mean, the, would they have gone through every single hour of footage? How much would they have had to have fast forwarded? But um, Leo Scott with Ting Poo's assistant took this footage with Val Kilmer's and Jack Kilmer's assistance and made this into a 108-minute um, movie that very, I think, profoundly summarizes Val Kilmer's career so well. And in terms of, well, not only acting, but also growing up in L.A., Val Kilmer's led a very interesting and sometimes very tragic life. For example, uh, when he was... At Juilliard, he was at the time the youngest student ever accepted at the prestigious acting university in New York City. While he was there, he had a younger brother named Mark who unfortunately died from drowning in the family's jacuzzi, and that's after he had an epileptic seizure. So the death of Val Kilmer's youngest son obviously has had a profound impact on him as you watch this film. 
And it goes through some of the movies, large and small, on which Val Kilmer has worked over the course of 30-plus years, including but not limited to his acting debut in the movie Top Secret. Now, Val Kilmer has the distinction of having his very first role in a movie be a lead role. And it doesn't even matter that Top Secret bombed at the box office. It did, but today it's regarded as one of Zucker Abrams Zucker's best films. In fact, it's Weird Al Yankovic's favorite film. It is a very weird film, but there are parts of it that are very funny as well as very visually impressive. But Val Kilmer's star just kept rising after that in movies like Real Genius, Top Gun, The Doors, Batman Forever, The Saint, and the list goes on. Of course, this movie does detail some of Val Kilmer's more troubled movie productions, probably most notoriously with The Island of Dr. Moreau. But when Val Kilmer was going around with his video camera, candidly filming people, including himself on the set, including David Thewlis, Marlon Brando, and director John Frankenheimer, he actually told a lot about the making of the film that not even another documentary based on how chaotic the film The Island of Dr. Moreau was to shoot would reveal. So there's a lot here about Val Kilmer's personal life and about his professional life as well and how sometimes how sometimes his uh, professional career got in the way of his personal life, which resulted in him divorcing his wife of nearly uh, 20 years, who was a fellow actress whose name, <laughs> and the internet is going slowly on me. I don't exactly know what's going on. But uh, anyway, <laughs> I- I'm having a few technical difficulties here. Forgive me for that. But... um. <laughs> His, he actually ended up divorcing his wife during the uh, filming of The Island of Dr. Moreau, if that wasn't chaotic enough. And it is sad to see Val Kilmer in his current state. He is still alive, and his good looks have faded, but it, it is really sad that he had throat cancer despite not uh, smoking. He must have had a very rare form of throat cancer, but it is good to see a retrospective of him while he's still alive and him being able to actively participate in such a project. It's not just a vanity project. It's really a a keen insight into a really great actor's career. And Val Kilmer is very much like Marlon Brando in the sense that He might have gotten famous for his good looks, but his acting chops really were the thing that kept him in the game for so long. He he was very serious about developing his craft. He took his craft very seriously, whether it was art house films or blockbuster movies. And it's great to see a retrospective of his life like Val. It's very well edited, and Val Kilmer did a service to himself by extensively filming as much footage as he did. I probably wouldn't want to watch all 800 hours of his 
life. And if I did, I'd probably have to cancel the show because there's no way I could go to the movies or even keep a job while watching Val Kilmer's archive footage. There's no way it would happen, but it's summarized very well here. And there may have been other footage that was also equally as interesting, if not more than what made it into the cut that ultimately ended up on the cutting room floor. But what's important is that Leo Scott and Ting Poo with Val and Jack Kilmer's assistance tell a very compelling story with some extensive archive footage that is fortunately edited very well and does tell an amazing, intriguing story. For that reason, Val gets my rating of a knockout. It is one of the most interesting documentaries about somebody in Hollywood I've seen in a very long time. And it captured my attention even during the parts of Val Kilmer's life, primarily his movies, in which I was more familiar than the things that happened before and after his prolific Hollywood career. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. Now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my next segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are going to be coming out in theaters and or on streaming. And I am going to go through the movies that are streaming first because there is a technical difficulty that is resulting in me, unfortunately, not being able to access the internet again. So it seems like luck has completely crapped out on me, at least in terms of a technical standpoint. And I'm going to have a long talk with the station manager, or rather the chief engineer, about what the hell is going on with the Wi-Fi. Uh, But technical difficulties happen, and I thank you, loyal listeners, for staying with me. I don't know what the heck's going on. But anyway, let's start with Netflix, when what's premiering on there in terms of the uh, movies and documentaries that are going to be premiering on Netflix for the week of August 8th through August 13th, 2021. So on Tuesday... August 10th, there is going to be a documentary that is premiering that is called Untold Malice at the Palace. What I'm guessing this documentary is about, and I don't have any information about it, which is unfortunate, but I am guessing this movie is about the royal palace where there is a lot of family drama that is making the U.S. and British, not to mention the world tabloids, all over... um, 
and it's, it's becoming everybody's business. Actually, the internet is working again now, so I'm going to disregard what I said about that Netflix movie and get into the movies that are going to be coming out the weekend of August 13th through August 15th in theaters near you this coming weekend. The first movie, first and foremost, is a movie that's called Free Guy. This is an action comedy starring Ryan Reynolds as a bank teller who discovers that he's actually an NPC inside a brutal open-world video game. It sounds kind of interesting. I'm not Ryan Reynolds' biggest fan, as I've made perfectly clear in this movie, oh, excuse me, in this uh, show about movies. In fact, the last movie that was released in theaters, which was called The Hitman's Bodyguard's Wife, was a tremendous disappointment, especially considering that you had Samuel L. Jackson, Salma Hayek, Morgan Freeman, and Antonio Banderas, a great cast, and it added up to a movie that was loud, but loud in the kind of the obnoxious way. But Free Guy, I'll give Ryan Reynolds a chance. I think he's going to ham it up quite a bit. And the movie also co-stars Jody Cormer, Taika YTT, and Atkarsh Ambudkar. Uh, looks like an interesting film. I probably will see it, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that's going to be premiering in theaters is one called Respect. This is simply the life story of legendary R&B singer Aretha Franklin. And who better to play Aretha Franklin than Jennifer Hudson? Honestly, I can't think of another actress who could play Aretha Franklin without lip-syncing to Aretha Franklin's previously recorded music. But Jennifer Hudson is not only a great actress who has been consistently good, even in bad movies, ever since her breakthrough role in Dreamgirls, but... I think Aretha was the role that Jennifer Hudson was ultimately born to play. She certainly has the acting chops as well as the singing chops. And as it turns out, Aretha Franklin, before she died in 2015, actually met up with Jennifer Hudson and told her that she wanted Jennifer Hudson to play her in a movie biopic. So how about that? You can't get any better than that. The movie also co-stars Forrest Whitaker, Audra McDonald, and Marlon Wayans, interestingly enough. And this is Marlon Wayans' first dramatic role that I know of since Requiem for a Dream. Like Ryan Reynolds, I've had a lot of choice things to say about Marlon Wayans, and it's also no surprise that, at least in terms of comedy, I am not a fan of Marlon Wayans. But I am going to give him a chance in this movie because it is not a comedy where he is basically making fun of people of his own race, just taking every negative black stereotype, putting it in a blender, taking that liquid blender, putting it in a needle and injecting it into his arm and basically becoming uh, a buffoon. So I'm going to give Marlon Wayans a chance on this one. I think Jennifer Hudson is going to be great in respect, but I don't know if the movie's going to going to be great. But what I can guarantee you is that I will see it and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that's subject to be released in theaters is one called Don't Breathe 2. This is a sequel to the 2018 movie that was more of a thriller than a horror movie, but it was pretty good. And it's set in the years following the initial deadly home invasion where Norman Nordstrom, played by Stephen Lang, lives in quiet solace until his past sins catch up to him. So in the original Don't Breathe, which also co-starred uh, Stephen Lang, 
Stephen Lang was the focal point of the story, but he wasn't the main character. In this movie, he is the main character, and we may find out how he got to be blind, whether or not he was born blind or whether he developed a condition like glaucoma or if he was blind because of an injury. The first movie didn't tell us. This is a perfect opportunity for the second movie to do so. I can't guarantee that I'm going to see this movie, but if I do, I'll let you know what I think after next week's show or on next week's show. Another movie that's going to be or subject to be premiering in theaters is one that's called CODA. CODA is spelled C-O-D-A, and it's an acronym that means Children of Deaf Adults. And I believe it also means that these children of deaf adults are not deaf themselves. In other words, they were born with hearing, unlike their parents. But as a CODA, as I said, a child of deaf deaf adults, Ruby is the only hearing person in her deaf family. When the family's fishing business is threatened, Ruby finds herself torn between pursuing her love of music and her fear of abandoning her parents. This sounds like Oscar bait. And and by Oscar bait, I'm not necessarily saying the movie is not good because there are some Oscar bait movies that put on a big show but are ultimately not great movies in and of themselves. But this movie has promise. All Oscar bait movies have promise. What, what matters is whether or not it can deliver on this promise. So Ruby in this movie is played by Emilia Jones, Her parents are played by Academy Award winner Marley Matlin and Troy Kotzer, both of whom are deaf in real life. As a matter of fact, Marley Matlin hasn't been in a a bigger movie since Children of a Lesser God, but she has been consistently acting, and she's also made um, appearances in such celebrated TV shows as Seinfeld, where she doesn't necessarily play herself, but she plays somebody who is deaf, as that's her her limit as an actress. But she's still very good and certainly deserving of her Oscar in Children of a Lesser God. So Coda is a movie I will look out for, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show, should I see it next week. But I'm not going to necessarily um, guarantee that I'm going to review it for next week. But it's, it's probably a film that's going to play in a lot of independent theaters. But I'll seek it out and I'll let you know what I think. Another movie that's going to be uh, or subject to be released in theaters is one called AMA. It's spelled E-M-A, not, um, well, whatever you think it would be spelled. But it's about a couple that's dealing with the aftermath of an adoption that goes awry as their household falls apart. This sounds like a big outhouse, uh, art house film. It stars uh, Gael Garcia Bernal and uh, Mariana Di Girolamo as the couple in the film. I presume that Ama is the name of their adopted child. Whether or not Ama is a girl or a boy, I don't know. But it is a Spanish film, and it is a film that. I might see, and if I do, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that's coming out or subject to come out in theaters is a war drama called The East. And this is about a young Dutch soldier deployed to 
suppressed post-World War II independence efforts in the Netherlands colony of Indonesia, who finds himself torn between duty and conscience when he joins an increasingly ruthless commander's elite squad. So this is post-World War II, but it's still full of bloodshed and violence. That's very interesting. I don't know if this is going to be premiering in a theater near me, but I would not be surprised if, come Oscar season, this film was nominated for Best Foreign Language Movie just based on its description and the fact that foreign Oscar bait works a lot better than American Oscar bait. Just saying. The last movie I'm going to mention of the several that are going to be premiering in theaters or are subject to be uh, premiere in theaters is a movie called The Meaning of Hitler. This is a movie that is a documentary. And according to IMDb, it came out in 2020. And it is an inquiry into decades of cultural fascination with the Nazi leader and the ramifications of such a fascination on present-day politics. This sounds particularly poignant because Hitler's name comes up every election season in America and undoubtedly in other parts of the world because the world is deathly afraid of electing another leader that is charismatic but ruthless like Adolf Hitler. And it is a very rational fear, because as the proverb says, those who forget the, the past are doomed to repeat it. A lot of people were worried that Donald Trump was going to be another Hitler. I didn't think he would be, um, but, and as it turns out, he wasn't, but the, the similarities I'm not going to get into right now. It's a very heavy topic, but The Meaning of Hitler is a documentary that is subject to be released in theaters, so look out for it. If I do see this, I will let you know what I think on next week's show. So as I said, Netflix has several originals that are going to be premiering on their platform. Some might be premiering in theaters, but not many. One of the Netflix originals that will be premiering on the platform on Tuesday, August 10th, is one that's called Untold. Malice at the Palace. That is a great rhyming scheme. Um, And it is not giving me any description that I can tell. Oh, actually, here it is. So Malice at the Palace is actually not about the royal family in Great Britain. It is actually a sports documentary. It is about a brawl that broke out near the end of a game between the Indiana Pacers, and the Detroit Pistons on November 19th, 2004. So this is a basketball documentary. I distinctly remember this brawl. It happened when I was in college. But nearly 17 years later, we re-examined that night and all the consequences that came from it. This is a documentary that is directed by Floyd Russ. This is amazing. Yeah, nearly 17 years and this fight it has probably eclipsed other uh, brawls that happened on the NBA courts, like the 1997 incident when Dennis Rodman was shoved off the court, and while that was the fault of the other player, immediately afterwards he kicked a cameraman who was on the sidelines for no apparent reason. Not the cameraman being on the sidelines for no apparent reason, but Dennis Rodman kicked him because he was frustrated and he was punished for it deservedly. So, but this, uh, Indiana Pacers, Detroit Pistons fight eclipses that one. Also another fight in the late seventies, 
that occurred when there was an NBA player named Kermit Washington who punched his opponent in the face and seriously injured that opponent. And that opponent was much smaller than Kermit Washington too, but that destroyed Kermit Washington's um, career, his, his NBA career. But my mistake about this being malice at the palace, apparently the palace was wherever the Detroit Pistons or the Indiana Pacers play. And I don't know what they call either of their uh, basketball stadiums, but this is a movie I will seek out. If I see it next week, I'll let you know what I think. Another movie that is going to be premiering as a Netflix original is going to be, and this might be to the chagrin of some and the delight of others, The Kissing Booth 3. Now, The Kissing Booth has been kind of hit or miss for me. I enjoyed the original Kissing Booth for what it was. I knew it wasn't going to be a great movie, but criticizing a movie like that is almost like kicking a dog for not not knowing how to do calculus. But... This movie, The Kissing Booth 3, takes off where The Kissing Booth 2 left off almost immediately afterwards because The Kissing Booth 2 ended up with um, L. Evans, who is played in this movie by Joey King, who has just graduated from high school. And this movie takes place during the summer before she's set to head off to college, and she has a big decision to make. And this is based on a series of books written by Beth Reekles. And the movie also co-stars Joel Courtney, Jacob Ellerdy, and Molly Ringwald, amongst other actors who were in the original films. And while I did think the original Kissing Booth movie was a bit girly-girly, and the Kissing Booth 2 I liked because it was funnier and it also lacked predictability, unlike the first Kissing Booth movie, I will acknowledge that the Kissing Booth movies are very girly films, for lack of a better term. They're for people who love Hallmark films and romantic comedies. And while there's nothing wrong with people who like those kinds of movies, it's not the kind of movie for me. But dare I say it, I will review this movie. And I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. I even feel bad for giving The Kissing Booth 2 a knockout. What I, I kind of am screaming to myself, my God, what have I done? I think in retrospect, I was I might have been a little bit wrong about that movie, but I liked it for the act. I mean, I, I thought it was exceptional for its acting as well as its storyline, not knowing where exactly you want to go. But again, this is a movie about privileged high school students in California beautiful people with problems. It is what it is. So if you call me a lush for liking the kissing booth too, well, cast the first stone if you must, but the kissing booth three, I don't have very high expectations for, uh, damn it, damn it, damn it, damn it, damn it. I will see it. I will review it for you on next week's show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.